We are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 139 on Faking Crazy, the Nellie Bly story. Yep. It's not. This one's, this one's a little different than we normally do. More like but history. I, yes. and But I will say I have no regrets because this lady is a total badass. Like I learned a lot about her and she's super cool. Awesome. Okay. I don't know anything about this chick. So well, you're about to know a lot about her. <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, okay. Well, before we get into it, we've got a few business items. Um, it is the last chance to enter our tank top sun's out guns out giveaway. Mm-hmm. That ends on Friday, the 28th of 2023. So if you're listening this to this in the future, it's been passed and you missed it and you didn't win a tank top. You did not win a tank top, but you know, we'll do another giveaway sometime. Yeah, that's true. Maybe one would come around by that point. Maybe. So all you need to do is go to our Instagram or Facebook page. We have a post out there about our tank top giveaway with what you need to do, which is like and tag a friend in that that picture and then if you want an extra entry all you need to do is share one of our posts and then tag us in it super easy super easy plus we I'm know stoked. you want to tell everyone about how much you love this podcast anyways that's right i mean to get rewarded for just doing something you normally would do every day i mean come on come on it doesn't get any easier than that it doesn't so right before this podcast we started <laughs> um we all of a sudden was like we need to do an investigation like we did last year at waverly hills mm-hmm. so we want to do one at ohio state reformatory in mansfield ohio yes. we have we have zero details about dates um but we not do a single n- detail not a single detail, but we're trying to get some feelers out there to see who actually like not to be flaky, not being like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. And then ghost us who really would actually want to come to this investigation because we need 30 people. And that's a lot. Yeah. 15 so 20, or 30, 28 more people because we'll be there. Mm-hmm. Um, But we've so whenever we went to Waverly, we stopped at Ohio State Reformatory. We no, did the day. No, we, we didn't. Oh, that was uh, inaccurate. Brownella. Okay. Factual. <laughs> so what? Two years ago now, right? Yeah. Time flies. Yeah. It really does. That feels like yesterday. <laughs> it, it does. I remember it very vividly. Um, very vividly. So we went on the daytime tour, but this is a overnight ish. So it's six p.m. to three a.m. in the morning. Um, if we can get the 30 people, it would just be the 30 of us in the building and it's a big building, which is super ideal because those public investigations, which they do have, first of all, cost the same. Yeah. And there will one likely be more people and two, you can't control and like get all together and say, you guys go to this end, we go to the other. So you get all this noise pollution. It's not as creepy because you feel very much like there's too many people around so yeah which we found at at waverly so uh there were people all over the place it was hard to to tell if it was a ghost or joe schmo in the next room exactly and this 
And while 30 people sounds like a lot, this place is massive. So we could even Mm -hmm. break up into smaller groups and kind of, you know, rotate where we are. So it's going to be kind of like a, uh, individual experience. Exactly. So let us know if you would be interested in that. We're trying to gather some troops that would be interested. We're thinking early June-ish this year. Um, so just let us know if that's something that you'd be interested in. And then as details come, we can kind of, um, you know, provide more information. Yeah. DM us if you're into it. Yeah. Cause we need serious folks while right. everybody wants to come because obviously, you know, who <laughs> wouldn't want to hang out with us? Indeed. <laughs> Lots of people probably, but, <laughs> but really like you can commit to a Saturday to do it and yeah. get to mansfield ohio yeah transportation not provided that is correct (laughs) if you need to take a greyhound i'll pick you up at the station but that's as far as i go (laughs) all right um, what else do we want them to do like share subscribe family please and thank you please and thank you and then another thing, we we don't really have any details on it yet because I haven't ordered them, but we are going to be um, getting some pins, P-I-N-S, um, little ones like a Hard Rock Cafe pin with our anniversary for celebrating three years. We've never done pins. We've always done stickers. So if you so want a pin. If you want a pin for your duffel bag, we got you. So we'll post whenever those are available um they're in limited supply as long as soon as they're gone they're gone forever forever and then it could be an antique or for your denim jacket or your denim vest yeah depending on what you're into that's true that's Mm -hmm. true i can't i have a hard time with pins because i love collecting pins but i like to put them on my book bag and then, like, I always bump up against things and they fall off. Oh, that's sad. Those are, like, the pins that have the one pin hole and then you put that little rubber backer on it. It's not, like, the enclosed pins. Those are way more sturdy. And that's what these are. Right. So you don't have to worry about losing this one. That's correct. As easily. Yes. And I can't remember if I mentioned, but Jamie is the one who um, did the art for that. Thank you, Jamie, for being awesome and doing all of our episode artwork. We really appreciate it. You are awesome. And I'm pretty sure the la- the next one that she did, I'm going to probably get it tattooed on my body. Like, yeah, like the artwork for, the for an episode. Episode, yeah. It's really good. It's amazing. She should be a tattoo artist. She should. Get on that, Jamie. Or maybe due to the designs. I feel like tattooing somebody's skin has to be like way different from like drawing. And how nerve wracking. I mean, what if I they know, sneeze? If you like mess up, what do you do? You just make it work. Happy accidents. That's it. Those <laughs> people are. Happy permanent accidents. <laughs> right. <laughs> but how crazy would it to be like for an artist? You know, they always want their work to be there forever. And they would be there forever for that person. Because they're mm-hmm. going to take it with them forever. Yeah. So um, one more thing. This isn't in the notes, but I just wanted to um, let y'all know. Last episode, we did BTK. And I had mentioned about getting a serial killer's daughter book by his daughter of the serial killer, Carrie. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm about 
40% of the way through. I got to tell you, sometimes like true crime books are hard for me to get into because the writing is just like too factual and it's not really a story. It's just kind of like stuff, right? Uh, dates put together. Yeah. And and she is a pretty good, um, pretty good storyteller. And yeah. it really goes through, you know, you always think about the family whenever this kind of thing happens and how could they not know and everything like that. It really goes through like her trials and tribulations of dealing with her father, who she knew to be like her most favorite person on earth, and then have to come to terms with the fact that he was murdering people like a few months after she was born, even. That is such an interesting perspective to gain into this kind of thing. And then for you to say that it's, you know, piqued your interest, you're able to actually read it. Cause I have the same trouble, especially in true crime. Like I can read factual books but true crime in particular it's really hard to read an entire book and be yeah. interested so yeah that's good because to know. a lot of the times too it's like people who don't really have any bearing on what's going on you know yeah, what i mean like it's skin just, in the game yeah they're just putting something together um and the only other author that they're not similar, but the uh, another author that I really enjoy reading true crime wise is Anne Rule because I wrote read uh, The Stranger Beside Me about Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Now that book is a long, long, long book, but super interesting because she was involved in his life, like knew him. So it's yeah. just crazy. It's crazy to see, you know, how they were before how they portrayed themselves what what people had to say about them yeah whenever they knew them as not a serial killer (laughs) even though they were a serial killer right and how duped like i could never imagine like if i found out my dad oh yeah how do you even process those things even if it's not your parent just like that you had a relationship with somebody and and knew them as one thing And I just feel too, like it would be, was I on the chopping block ever, you know, like, right. Like think about all of your interactions. Did they ever think about. Right. (laughs) Well, in the book, she says how, you know, he can kind of turn it on and turn it off, but he was very moody where, you know, a lot of the stuff was like, oh yeah, he was just a family man, boy scout, this and that. But there was definitely a fine line that they had to walk around him so he wouldn't get angry. And I think that's what he, what his outlet was, was those murders, unfortunately. And then and he'd be better. this is about Dennis Rader. Uh-huh. Huh. Ew. Yeah. I'll let you borrow it. But, Sounds good to me. But I will say, I'm very disappointed in Amazon. Again. Why? Oh, gosh. Be- they do you wrong all the time. What happened? <laughs> they didn't hit my car this time. However... I ordered a book from them that was like supposed to be in good condition um, used. And I am not a hardback paper book person. I like paperbacks because they fit my purse and whatever. Mm -hmm. But this was a hardback. And whenever I read a hardback, I take the dust cover off because it annoys me. But then I always put it back on to display proudly. This one didn't come with a freaking dust cover, man. What kind of jackals don't put the dust cover back on? I don't know. The dust covers are annoying. They are annoying, but they need to be there to be displayed <laughs> proudly on my shrine of books. <laughs> I don't know. There could be a face of her or 
Dennis Rader. I'll never know because I don't have the freaking sleeve, man. Google just black. It. <laughs> That's disappointing. Um, anyway. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess okay. I'm done. Done. Done complaining about <laughs> Amazon for the day. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get us started okay. on this episode. So Elizabeth Jane Cochran, she was born May 5th. 1864 in Cochran's Mills, which is now part of Burrell Township, Armstrong County, Pennsylvania. Her father, Michael Cochran, was born about 1810, and he started out as a laborer and mill worker before buying the local mill and most of the land around his family farmhouse. He later became a merchant, postmaster, and associate justice at Cochran's Mills, which was named after him in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So, like, pretty good guy. Yeah, doing pretty good. Michael married twice. This is is always crazy to me. He had 10 children with his first wife, Catherine Murphy, and five more children, including Elizabeth Cochran, his 13th daughter, with his second wife, Mary Jane Kennedy. Who are these people popping out 10 babies in the 1800s? With no no epidural either. No. This is insane. I mean, how many did you, did your grandparents have a ton of siblings? My grandpa had 13 siblings. Uh well, my dad had eight, but they're Catholic. So like that's the norm. But then like my grandma, yeah, I guess she had eight. They had eight. Yeah. Just... My grandpa's family is Catholic too, and they had 13 siblings. I mean, that is insane to me. I think there you was know, two two wives in that situation too. Well, they but... my dad, they had eight kids in a two-bedroom house one was their or no i'm sorry three-bedroom house one was their bedroom one was for the boys and one was for the girls and one bathroom never how how did people even how do the you plumbing alone the plumbing alone one bathroom <laughs> for that many people toilet paper i mean toilet paper i mean geez that just blows my mind i know they did that too because like people their kids had to like labor on the farm or whatever like help do things but man that's a lot of kids but still though I mean you had to wait a while at least until they're like five or six to be able to like Mm -hmm. do things get them to do anything yeah Mm. I don't know so Michael Cochran he died in 1870 when Elizabeth was just six years old as a young girl Elizabeth often was called pink because she was so frequently in that color As she became a teenager, she wanted to portray herself as more sophisticated, and she dropped the nickname and changed her surname to Cochran with an E, whereas before Mm. it did not have the E. And she went by this pink nickname so much that she, like, was signing documents and things like that as that being her name. Oh, wow. So she dropped that when she got older. In 1879, she enrolled at Indiana Normal School, which is just like how to be a a woman i'm pretty sure oh like etiquette school i don't know about etiquette but just like how to run a house kind of thing i think and that's now indiana university of pennsylvania which oh, wow. fun fact is where um what's his name my favorite person jimmy stewart mm. mr james stewart lived they got a real nice museum for him in indiana pennsylvania highly recommend um <laughs> She was there for one term, but was forced to drop out due to lack of funds. So in 1880, Cochran's mother moved her family to Allegheny City, 
which was later annexed by the city of Pittsburgh. Okay. So, huh. You know what? I wish they'd bring that back. Like, how to run a household. <laughs> a school. Not just for ladies. Because we need to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could benefit from all of that. I feel like I need to know what needs, or I I already know what needs done. It's really just the doing it part that I have trouble with. Yeah, the motivation. They need to teach that in school, I feel and like. Time, time management. I don't yeah. know. You know, people didn't like have time to themselves so much back then either. You know, they didn't have TV or that kind of entertainment. Mm. They probably read a book and went to bed at night if they even read or could read. So That's true. You know, they were doing all that stuff all day. Yeah, I think now the problem is, is that we're also overstimulated with everything. We can't be just bored now. Like, I say yeah. that to my kid all the time, but it's true for me too. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I <laughs> I feel like that's definitely something that you have to experience. Mm -hmm. And with having young children, I don't want them to experience that because it's normally them bothering me. Right. That is occurring. <laughs> However, it is important. I mean, I, I feel like I read something that was talking about that, how like children not being bored. So the artist never, you know, starts drawing and mm -hmm. the musician never picks up the guitar and learns because you really have to be bored to like hone those kind of skills. I agree. And if you're not bored, you're never going to do it. Right. So that's a good point. Wow. That just blew my mind. I know. I read that and was like, oh, crap. Well, the problem is now is you don't need to be creative. They have AI that does it for you. Right. Which is ridiculous. <laughs> there's that. Okay. In 1885, a column in the Pittsburgh Dispatch titled What Good or What Girls Are Good For stated that girls were principally for birthing children and keeping house. That did not age well. No. This prompted Elizabeth to write a response under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. The editor, George Madden, was impressed with her passion and ran an advertisement asking the author to identify herself. When Cochran introduced herself to the editor, he offered her the opportunity to write a piece for the newspaper, again under the pseudonym Lonely or Orphan Girl. Her first article for the dispatch titled The Girl Puzzle argued that not all women would marry and that was what was needed was better jobs for women. So they didn't need to be just homemakers. They needed good jobs. Mm -hmm. Her second article, Mad Marriages, was about how divorce affected women. In it, she argued for reform of divorce laws. Mad Marriages was published under the byline of Nellie Bly rather than Lonely Orphan Girl it was customary for women who were newspaper writers at the time to use pen names. The editor chose Nellie Bly after the Af um, African-American title character in the popular song Nellie Bly by Stephen Foster. Cochran originally intended that her pseudonym be Nellie Bly by her editor, uh, but her editor wrote Nellie, like N-E-L-L-I-E, -E, by mistake, and the error stuck. Madden was impressed again and offered her a full-time job. So it's funny that this guy saying that, you know, all they're good for is birthing kids and keeping house, then gave this girl a job. <laughs> well, he didn't write that article. He's just the editor for the newspaper, but he did print that article. So, yeah, you know, I think that it's interesting that 
women that wrote for newspapers at the time used pen names. I wonder if men all did too. It was probably so they didn't get like strung up for writing stuff about mad marriages and women needing better jobs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. As a writer, Nellie Bly focused her early work for the Pittsburgh Dispatch on the lives of working women, writing a series of investigative articles on women factory workers. However, the newspaper soon received complaints from factory owners about her writing, and she was reassigned to women's pages to cover fashion, society, and gardening. Hmm. Ew. Yeah. Ew. So the men running the factories didn't like her writing about the women working in the factories. And then they, the editor was like, oh, how about you write about clothes? <laughs> So, obviously, she was not satisfied with that. She was only 21, and she was determined to, quote, to do something no girl has done before. And at that point, she traveled to Mexico to serve as a foreign correspondent, spending nearly half a year reporting on the lives and customs of the Mexican people. Her dispatches later were published in book form as Six Months in Mexico. In one report, she protested the imprisonment of a local journalist for criticizing the Mexican government, which was then a dictatorship under Porfirio Diaz. When Mexican authorities learned of Bly's report, they threatened her with an arrest, prompting her to flee the country. Once she was home and safe, she accused Diaz of being a tyrannical czar, suppressing the Mexican people and controlling the press. Wow. So she probably wasn't allowed back in Mexico for a while. that's crazy though like in that time to go to another country like by yourself to do investigative journaling yeah i mean she is young and she does not give a single f i love it yeah she's awesome trailblazer um burdened again with theater and arts reporting bly left the pittsburgh dispatch in 1887 for new york She faced rejection after rejection, as news editors would not consider hiring a woman. Penniless after four months, she talked her way into the offices of Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, The New York World. For years, rumors had swirled about conditions in one of the city's most notorious places, the Insane Asylum, on Blackwell's Island, now known as Roosevelt Island. Blackwell's uh, was home to a number of public institutions, including a penitentiary, a poorhouse, hospitals for infectious disease like smallpox, and the asylum. Bly took an undercover assignment for which she agreed to feign insanity to investigate reports of brutality and neglect at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island. Whoa! Mm -hmm. This just got good. Isn't it crazy that they used to put all of that stuff on one island? And I feel like hospitals for infectious diseases should be on its own island. (laughs) They're infectious. (laughs) They need to be away. Like, yeah. don't put them with the prisoners and the poor people and the crazy people. <laughs> Those are not the same things. Those are not infectious. <laughs> Could you imagine, though, like working on that island? Like, that would be so nerve wracking to know that yeah. across the way there's all the infectious diseases that could kill me. But here I am. Yeah, I wonder if they did things like have people that are in the penitentiary, like go clean up at the hospital and stuff like that. I don't mm-hmm. know. Ugh, it just seems same, like a bad idea. <laughs> it's the same thing with like the TB hospitals and stuff like that. Like to yeah. w- the one ghost adventures went to 
um, one in Minnesota. I can't remember what the name of it is, but this guy was a janitor and he had to help the doctor crack open ribs to like make room for lungs. It's just like, what is happening? Well, like, he was not being paid enough. I will no. assure you because that is not in his job description. When I guess like they were, he said that they were all suited up and they were just going to make him go in there with nothing. And he's like, if you want me to do this, you're putting clothes on me and I'm going to be protected as best as you can. I mean, back in that time, they right. didn't they fully didn't understand what they were dealing with. So she took a room at a cheap boarding house, the temporary home for females, number 84, Second Avenue under the name Bly Brown and began questioning and imitating the women who seemed most insane to her. She stayed up all night to give herself the wide-eyed look of a disturbed woman and began making accusations that the other boarders were insane. Bly told the assistant matron, there are so many crazy people about and no one are, yeah, and one can never tell what they will do. She refused to go to bed and soon enough, it was Bly who was deemed crazy. So that's all it took was just being awake and thinking other people were crazy. (laughs) Just, yeah, acting crazy a bit. And um, the matron of the house enlisted a few cops to escort Bly to the Essex Market police courtroom where an impatient judge named Duffy pronounced her insane. And the judge sent Bly to Bellevue Hospital where she got a taste of the suffering to come as hospital inmates were forced to eat spoiled food and live in squalid conditions. So this is just in a like go between hospital. When Bly was diagnosed with dementia and other psychological illnesses, she was sent by ferry to Blackwell's Island in the East river. The ferry boat was filled stem to stern with unwashed and uncomprehending women for Blackwell's Island, an insane place, one ambulance driver told her, where you'll never get out of. Wow, that's so scary because she could never get out of there. I mean, maybe. I don't know how the story ends, but. Well, <sighs> the the world's news are, yeah, the wor- the New York world, the people that sent her there, I think they didn't know how they were going to get her out when they sent her. Um, probably just assumed they could just go and get her out, I guess. But I don't think that there was like a detailed plan beforehand. And there also really wasn't a detailed plan to get her into it. She just needed to figure that out. And she did did pretty easily. Yeah. She got in pretty quick, pretty easy. Uh, Originally built to hold a thousand patients, Blackwell was cramming more than 1,600 people in the asylum when Bly arrived in the fall of 1887. That's crazy. That's like sardines. And we always hear that, that they're always so far overextended. And how does that happen? Because all she had to do. When you hit when you hit a thousand people, though, don't you think they're like no no more people? (laughs) Well, we we have maxed out our capabilities and it's a. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say it's a state or federally funded institution. So I can they not turn people away, I guess, if they don't have anywhere to send them? Probably. Well, no wonder, though, that it's so easy to be crammed full whenever that's all it took to get sent there. Oh, yeah, that gets worse. Continue. Oh, great. Okay. (laughs) Extensive, Extensive budget cuts had led to a sharp decline in patient care leaving just 16 doctors on staff for all those 1,600 people. That are all supposedly crazy. Right. It's not like people that are just hanging out. 
<laughs> they're yeah. people that actively need care. But most disturbing of all was the prevailing wisdom of the age regarding both the causes of mental illness and how patients should be treated. Asylums like Blackwell's were considered curiosities where thrill seekers like Charles Dickens and others could visit those thought mad. So they could just go like peruse the people. Yeah, I think they could take like day trips. I mean, we're we just talked about going to Ohio State Reformatory. However, there's no, nobody there's no there. More people. <laughs> but if there were, I don't know. Maybe I'd go. Doctors and not. not with sixteen doctors on staff. I need a <laughs> hell of a lot more people than that. <laughs> doctors and staff with little training and in many cases little compassion ordered harsh and brutal treatments that did little to heal and much to harm. Bly quickly befriended her fellow inmates who revealed rampant psychological and physical abuse. Patients were forced to take ice cold baths and remain in wet clothes for hours, leading to frequent illness. They were forced to sit still on benches without speaking or moving for stints lasting 12 hours or more. That hurts my butt and my back. Talk, talk about being bored. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Some patients were tethered together with ropes and forced to pull carts around like mules. Food and sanitary conditions were horrific with rotten meat, moldy, stale bread, and frequently contaminated water that was dished out. Those who complained or resisted were beaten, and Bly even spoke of the threat of sexual violence by vicious, tyrannical staffers, which, unfortunately, I'm not surprised with. Not at all. Bly was shocked to discover that many of the inmates were not insane at all, like herself. They were recent immigrants, mostly women caught up in law enforcement system in which they were unable to communicate. How terrible. That's mm -hmm. like their first view of America. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to America. Others that Bly met at Blackwell's and Bellevue Hospital before had fallen through the cracks of society with a few social safety nets or with few social safety nets, ending up committed simply for being poor with no family to support them. To her horror, Bly quickly realized that while many of these inmates were not suffering from mental illness before they arrived at the asylum, their treatments inflicted grave psychological damage on them. How could it not? Right. How could it not? Sitting somewhere for 12 hours without speaking, being treated like that. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. And the fact that most of these people were either immigrants or poor, just poor women who didn't have family to take care of them and no right. way to support themselves. Like, ugh, they just plus, end up here. Plus, I'm sure that while some of them were not, insane some of them probably were and that's a dangerous place situation to be. yeah and they're not taking care of anybody nobody's yeah. being taken care of so nobody mm. should be there taking careful notes of both her own experiences and those of her fellow inmates Bly painted a dire picture in which 16 doctors were assigned to the care of some 1600 inmates accepting two she recorded i have never seen them pay any attention to the patients so out of those 16 doctors, only two of them were cool. Wow. And I don't think I say this later, but she ended up dating one of those doctors. Hopefully one of the two. It was one of the two. I don't know about dating, but it said they had a very close, intimate relationship. Oh, get it, girl. Get it. So, you know. 
She also questioned the judge's ability to pronounce a woman insane by merely bidding her good morning and refusing to hear her pleas of release. Even the sick ones know it is useless to say anything, for the answer will be that it is their imagination. So that was a quote. Mm. She also reported on the cultural insensitivity and language barriers experienced by immigrant women who spoke little or no English and a host of hostile and abusive treatments from mandatory cold baths to confinement in small, damp, vermin-infested locked rooms. That would be even more terrifying. Like, the whole thing sounds absolutely terrible and super terrifying, but... To then not know the language. So somebody's screaming at you and you have no idea what they're saying to like do what they're requesting of. Like that would be awful. Right. After a few days on Blackwell's Island, Bly dropped her act of acting crazy and tried to present herself in a more fit mental state. Such efforts were all for naught until the New York world sent an attorney to arrange for her release. So her being like, I'm not actually crazy. I'm fine. Which. (laughs) That's what crazy people say. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I see why that didn't work in a couple of days, (laughs) but um, they ended up having to send an attorney to get her out. Two days later, on Sunday, October 9th, 1887, the world ran the first installment of her story titled Behind Asylum Bars, and Bly became an overnight sensation. This was later made into a book called Ten Days in a Madhouse. The psychiatrist who had erroneously diagnosed her as insane offered profuse apologies, (laughs) even as the remaining stories were widely syndicated across the nation. Of course. Of course, you're going to be like, oh, shit. (laughs) our bad now they know we didn't mean to (laughs) at least i mean at least her employer made do on the promises and like got her out of there because they could have just left her there and then she would have screwed yeah Mm -hmm. there seems Mm -hmm. like there's no getting out after you're in basically not only did the new york city municipal government appropriate appropriate more money to the care of the mentally ill on Blackwell's Island, a grand jury was impaneled to investigate the abuses and poor treatments Bly uncovered at the asylum. Approximately one month after her articles ran in print, many of the most glaring problems she reported had improved. That's good. Better living and sanitary conditions were instituted. More nourishing meals were provided. Translators were hired for the foreign born who were not necessarily mentally ill, but simply just couldn't understand what they were trying to freaking tell them. And the most abusive nurses and physicians were fired and replaced. Wow. So they turned around real quick and that a lot of that happened before they even instituted this grand jury to investigate. As soon as the article came out, I think Blackwell's Island was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Got to get gotta this under get wraps. It together. <laughs> yeah. Make it well, better before more people get here. <laughs> and just like the simple things, like, you know, whenever my house is messy, I am more irritated than anything. And whenever you eat crappy food, you feel crappy. Like all of those things combined can really mess with your psyche and like your ability to heal if you really are even on that spectrum of, of, insanity but and that those two things you just listed are like the lowest level somebody uh-huh. forcing you into cold bath water and then having to sit in your clothes yeah or people yelling at you and abusing you i mean nobody's gonna get better no in that situation and there were so many institutions like that 
Well, and, and again, to your point about being at max plus capacity, if they're not trying to rehabilitate even, anybody, you're never going to get out of it ever. Right. There's no, there's only inflow, no outflow. Mm-hmm. In, in, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. In 1893, Bly used the celebrity status she had gained from her asylum reporting skills to schedule an exclusive interview with the allegedly insane serial killer, Lizzie Halliday. So that I don't know about this girl. Biographer Brooke Kroger argues, and this is a quote, her two-part series in October 1887 was a sensation, effectively launching the decade of stunt or detective reporting, a clear precursor to investigative journalism, and one of Joseph Pulitzer's innovations that helped give new journalism of the 1880s and 1890s its moniker. The employment of stunt girls has often been dismissed as a circulation-boosting gimmick of the sensationalist press. However, the genre also provided women with their first collective opportunity to demonstrate that, as a class, they had the skills necessary for the highest level of general reporting. The stunt girls, with Bly as their prototype, were the first women to enter the journalistic mainstream in the 20th century. So that is cool AF. Oh, yeah. And it led into... Like better investigative journalism, like that is so cool. <laughs> that is cool. I really want to read that book, Ten Days in a Madhouse. Yeah, I'm writing that down, adding right. that to my Amazon, <laughs> my Amazon cart <laughs> with a freaking dust cover. Um, dust cover our bust, Amazon. Right. In 1888, Bly suggested to her editor at the New York World that she take a trip around the world. Attempting to turn the fictional around the world in 80 days in into fact for the first time. A year later at 9.40 a.m. on November 14th, 1889, and with two days notice, she, wow, two days notice to pack for around the world travels. <laughs> she, she boarded the Augusta Victoria, a steamer of the Hamburg American line and began her 40,070 kilometer journey. To sustain interest in the story, the world organized a Nellie Bly guessing match in which readers were asked to estimate Bly's est- uh, arrival time to the second with the grand prize consisting of a first of trip to Europe and later on spending money for the trip. Wow. So they got a trip and some spending money. Yeah. Getting people Dur- excited. Yeah. During her travels around the world, Bly went through England, France, uh, where she met Jules Verne. Brindisa, the Suez Canal, Colombo, the Straits settlements of Penagag, and Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan. So she went everywhere. Mm-hmm. She went around the world. <laughs> Just over. <laughs> I was going to say in 80 days, but I don't think, I think she beat it. She did. Just over 72 days after her departure from Hoboken, Bly was back in New York. She had circumnavigated the globe, traveling alone for almost the entire journey. Bly's journey was a world record. However, it only stood for a few months because George Francis Train completed the journey in 67 days. Can't you just let her have that one, dude? What a what a jerk. I mean, I couldn't even imagine traveling for 72 straight days. I go for a week on vacation and I need another vacation to like yeah. relax. At home. Yeah. <laughs> 
After the fanfare of her trip around the world, Bly quit reporting and took a lucrative job writing serial novels for publisher Norman Monroe's weekly New York Family Story paper. The first chapters of Eva the Adventuress, based on the real-life trial of Eva Hamilton, appeared in print before Bly returned to New York. Between 1889 and 1895, she wrote 11 novels. Wow. As few copies of the paper survived, these novels were thought lost until 2021, when author David Blixt announced their discovery, found in Monroe's British Weekly, The London Story Paper. In 1893, though still writing novels, she returned to reporting for the world. Couldn't get away. Nope. In 1895, Bly married millionaire manufacturer Robert Seaman. Bly was 31 and Seaman was 73 when they married. Hmm. I'm sure it was about love. Due to her I'm, husband's... I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Due to her husband's uh, failing health, she left journalism and succeeded her husband as head of the Iron Clay and Manu- Plaid Manufacturing Company, which made steel containers such as milk cans and boilers. Seaman died in 1904. So they had a few good years. Yeah. I don't know what good years looks like with a 73-year-old man when you're 31. She probably got to travel wherever she wanted for free. I don't know. I don't know. Make it in the, around the world in 66 days. Suck it, George Francis Train. That's right, George Francis Train. Suck <laughs> it. That same year, I... Ironclad began manufacturing the steel barrel that was the model for the 55-gallon oil drum, still in widespread use in the United States. There has been claims that Bly invented the barrel, but the inventor was registered as Henry Were Whoa Were Herner. I think it's just Werhan. <laughs> But that is a lot of H's. (laughs) That's more H's I've ever seen in a name. (laughs) And that's U.S. patents 808,327 and 808,413. Yeah, unnecessary. Yeah, but now you know. In case case you want to look it up. (laughs) And and see this name that we're looking at with all these freaking H's. Woo. Bly was, however, an inventor in her own right, receiving a patent for a novel milk can and for a stacking garbage can, both under her married name of Elizabeth Cochran Seaman. For a time, she was one of the leading women industrialists in the United States, but her negligence and embezzlement by a factory manager resulted in the ironclad manufacturing company going bankrupt rough dang you know you can't win them all all right i mean she did so much and it's not her fault she's not good at business (laughs) yeah she had a lot of wins more wins than losses and that some man embezzled money from her company what a turkey Yes. She, oh, according to biographer Brooke Kroger, she ran her company as a model of social welfare, which is a, I mean, that would be a problem that I would probably have also. Yeah. Like, oh, they need help. Let's give them $2 Uh million. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Replete with health benefits and recreational facilities. She's making a nice place to work that ends up being expensive. But Bly was hopeless at understanding the financial aspects of her business and ultimately lost everything. Unscrupulous employees bilked the firm of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Troubles compounded by protracted and costly bankruptcy litigation. So 
not good. No, it's just not her thing. It's just not her thing. You can't be good at everything. That's right. She she did a lot of good stuff. But you know what? She turned right around back into reporting. She covered the women's suffrage procession of 1913 for the New York Evening Journal. Her article's headline was Suffragists are Men's Superiors. And in its text, she accurately predicted that it would be 1920 before women in the United States would be given the right to vote. Bly wrote stories on Europe's Eastern Front during World War I. She was the first woman and one of the first foreigners to visit the war zone between Serbia and Austria. She was, like, super brave. Oh, yeah. I would never do that. <laughs> she, me, me either. <laughs> she was arrested when she was mistaken for a British spy. She's so freaking good. Yeah. She's wow. Just, she's super cool. Oh. Um, on January 27th, 1922, Bly died of pneumonia at St. Mark's Hospital, New York City, age 57. She was young, but I guess not back what in the a, day. But what a freaking life. Yeah. That she crammed into those years. Yeah. Insane. She was entered at Woodland Cemetery in the Bronx, New York City. One can only suspect what further triumphs and good deeds this remarkable woman might have achieved if only she lived a few more years longer. At the very least, she helped change the plates of the mentally ill in America, um, an issue, sadly, that still requires attention to this very day, which is very, very, very true. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. Some of her honors, in 1998, Bly was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. She was one of four journalists honored with a U.S. postage stamp and a women in journalism set in 2002, which now I want to get my hands on that. Yeah, I love Do you collect, I don't collect stamps, like, by any means, but when I go into the post office, if I have to actually go into the post office, I always am looking to see if they have any cool stamps. Like and- my Mr. Rogers stamps. Like if you yeah. get something from me with a Mr. Rogers stamp on it, it means I love you, kid. <laughs> <laughs> I I do the same thing. I won't use them if I really like them, which is so dumb because what am I going to do with freaking stamps? But we, I don't know if you watch uh, last week tonight with John Oliver. I love I've seen, that. I've seen some episodes, oh. but I know you watch it like all the time. Every week, every Sunday is so good and he is so funny but he like he's it's true what he's saying and Mm -hmm. they do like these stupid things all the time like they'll make a joke and then they'll buy a website so nobody else can buy it I don't know they just do stupid shit and they made a a stamp book and they use the money that they collected to donate to a charity or something so we have we have a book of those and I used one once and Josh was like, what are you doing? Those are limited edition. I'm like, what? You want to put them in a freaking frame and put them on the wall? Like, I don't know what to do with these things. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. It's a problem because I definitely am guilty of that also. But I always get, I think they're always forever stamps. Are those forever stamps? So technically you can use them later. <laughs> yeah, like in 30 years when nobody knows who John Oliver is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that one time I watched a show, I watched one of my programs. They'll be able to send mail later. (laughs) Right. In 2019, the Roosevelt Island Operating Corporation put out an open call for artists to create a Nellie Bly Memorial art installation on Roosevelt Island, which is where Blackwell Island, if you recall. 
The winning proposal, The Girl Puzzle by Amanda Matthews, was announced on October 16th, 2019, and The Girl Puzzle opened to the public in December of 2021. Wonder what's what's there now. I don't know. I gotta look it up. It definitely wasn't on my list of places to visit when I went to New York, but... I mean, it should have been. It should have been, yeah. I just didn't know about it. The New York Press Club confers an annual Nellie Bly Cub Reporter Journalism Award to acknowledge the best journalistic effort by an individual with three years or fewer of professional experience. So in 2020, it was awarded to Claudia Arizari Aponte of The City. So they're still putting huh. awards out for it too. Pretty That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, so Roosevelt Island, it's a residential community now. Oh and- my gosh. They have a number of parks and landmarks, and then they also have, like, the historical aspect. So they have the Renwick Ruin, which was a smallpox hospital, the Octagon Tower, which is the remnants of the insane asylum, and on the northern tip, a 19th century lighthouse anchoring a park from where visitors can wide-angle view New York City. So, yeah, this should have definitely been on your list, dude. Yeah, I was only there for a couple days. I fit a lot in. We need to make a trip to New York. No regrets. (laughs) Okay. So this is other instances of undercover work to expose institutions. Just a, just a little added spice here. Yep. We're going to pepper, pepper the gumbo. So the Rosenhan experiment, psychologist, Dr. David Rosenhan of Stanford university and seven others perfectly sane subjects went undercover inside various psychiatric hospitals from 1969 to 1972 and acted insane in order to see if the doctors there could tell that they were faking it. Spoiler alert. They couldn't. (laughs) Uh, They were so good at acting. They couldn't tell. In addition to stubbornly sticking to their diagnosis, hospital staff would treat the pseudo patients coldly Interactions with the staff range from disinterested at best to abusive at worst. Even when the pseudo patients attempted to engage with staff in a friendly conversational manner, responses were not good or not given at all. Mm-hmm. But while hospital staff treated the pseudo patients poorly and never realized they were faking, the actual patients often had no trouble detecting them. Like, You're not crazy, you stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> why are you here um when the researchers were able to keep track 35 out of 118 actual patients blatantly accused the pseudo patients of faking it with some outright stating you're not crazy you're a journalist or a professor wow (laughs) wow nevertheless the doctors never got wise the pseudo patients were eventually released stays ranged from 7 to 52 days Ugh, wow. With an average of 19, but all with the same diagnosis under which they'd been admitted. They were released, however, because doctors decided that their condition was in remission. So they, almost all of them were diagnosed as being schizophrenic. And I think this experiment definitely number one has area for critique and people do critique it. And I didn't include anything else about it more or less because I don't think it's really widely accepted by the scientific community as as an experiment. 
Um, but I thought it was interesting that they, the people would come in, say that they were hearing voices and they were like schizophrenic, get out of here, get into the institution. And then they would say, I'm not hearing the voices any longer and would, you know, be in remission acting i don't know but yeah they would just say you're in remission but you know what that's gonna stay with you forever because you were put into a psych ward as having schizophrenia even though you didn't i mean granted they said they were hearing voices yeah (laughs) and therefore that what what do you do with that but yeah so that's gonna stick with you forever and the other thing i thought was interesting was that all they did was say they were hearing voices and that is used by a psychiatrist or whoever to diagnose people and you're diagnosing people on what they're saying there's not really any other way to do it and i hadn't super thought about that before but like i don't know that's just an interesting concept that that you're going off of a person's word on what's going on but there's nothing else you can really do no tangible evidence that this is occurring well, and it, it would make sense too that if you would say that you are hearing voices, you get put in one of these asylums, and then you're like, "This is nuts! I don't want to be here." Of course, you're gonna say, "I'm." They stop talking. Like they're I don't done. hear shit. <laughs> right? Like, of course you would do that. So I could also see, yeah, where they would be a little leery of just being like, "Oh, they're in remission. They said they stopped." You know, all of a sudden, right? are they enjoying their stay here right (laughs) i doubt there's mints on the pillow and shit going on zero out of ten but i don't (laughs) hear the voices anymore wink wink (laughs) oh my goodness all right another one that i came across was the willowbrook state school 44 years ago more than that now i don't know like 50 years ago television journalist geraldo rivera joined by Mm. print reporter jane Curtin, used a stolen key and an inside tip to go behind the walls of the willowbrook state school for the developmentally disabled on staten island so they like straight snuck up into this biatch he is a badass geraldo rivera you know him he is a badass i'm pretty sure i've seen some things in fact i think i saw this one but it's been so long yeah, I because this was a big deal. I don't know if th- is this in New York? Yeah, it's on Staten Island. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. This is the one I've seen too. His investigative report captured a story and scenes so shocking it changed the face of mental health as we now know it. Rivera recalled the story of Bernard, a patient he interviewed at the school. He was 21 years old at the time, but had been at the school since he was a toddler. Quote, Bernard was a classic example. He was a guy with cerebral palsy and other disabilities, but he did not have a low IQ. In other words, his IQ was normal within the normal range. He was just misdiagnosed, Rivera said. In those days, they put everybody in the institution. At the time of the interview, it was Bernard's birthday, and he was able to sign himself out of the institution because he was of age. Since then, he has worked for the state as a patient advocate, Rivera said. So he's had a long career. He's now 66 years old and he's about to retire, but he's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of potential unrealized for that population. So he was in there from the time he was a toddler to the time he was 21. God knows the terrible situation Mm -hmm. that he was in for the time. And he 
got out and like had a job and took care of people. He's a patient advocate and he's retiring. And just the fact that you can mentally come out of that. Yeah. That's a strong person right there. Right. So, cause I remember this was in, I hate maybe let's see. I'm pretty sure this is the same one that was on ghost adventures. Hey, sorry. I got to look it up because yeah. So they called it the former psychiatric hospital is what the episode is, Mm -hmm. but it's this one. And they show a little blip of Geraldo Rivera there and how it was the same kind of situation as the um, Nellie Bly hospital where they were short staffed. Um, Mm -hmm. They didn't have the means to take care of people. People were sitting in their crap and just like terrible not humane conditions for these people Mm -hmm. um let's see here rivera's landmark report exposed the negligence and abuse inside an institution that was meant to educate the disabled it was called a school but there was no education or remediation or vocational training there's none of that he said rivera described it as a kennel for the human um humanity disguised as a school So no criminal charges were filed as a result of the report, but Rivera says a greater outcome was achieved. Now everyone knew that the institution was no way to care for this population, he said. It's absolutely, um, it absolutely began the end of the institutional era that had existed since Bedlam and the United Kingdom in the 19th century. That's crazy. like the beginning of the end for that kind of stuff, which I think is probably still potentially happening in places Mm -hmm. oh yeah i mean i i feel like too in the um ghost adventures episode they um talked to like a nurse that used to work there and how she had so many patients and how there was some nurses that really did care they Mm -hmm. did not have the ability to take care of of people yeah and how heartbreaking and you know the conditions were crap for the workers too but some of them can't quit yeah you can't leave nobody to take care of these people look what a terrible position to be put into Mm -hmm. despicable is what it it is is. it is terrible oh all right so let me go ahead and cite my sources I used wikipedia.com, pbs.com, biography.com, 13.org, and allthat'sinteresting.com for wow. all of this information and the story. A I'm really glad life. we did this one. I feel like I randomly saw a little blurb of an article, unless somebody, did any, did somebody suggest this? I don't think so. I think I saw a blurb of an article and was like, oh, I want to do that. And it yeah, came well- out different than I thought, but I'll like it. <laughs> When I think we were talking about um, American Horror Story or something like that, the Asylum one, because there's kind of like a that vibe she like sneaks in there, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very interesting. What a, um, I mean, really putting your mind and your body to the test to try to uncover terrible atrocities. Mm-hmm. So, very interesting stuff. Indeed. Okay, well, we hope you enjoyed episode 139 on Faking Crazy, the Nellie Bly story. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.